Just a brief second to catch us up and, and get us up to speed about, about what we're doing. We spent half of our time, right, talking about theology in general, right? We just said that theology was just the, basically the, the study of God. It's, it's just thinking about God, all right? It's theology is thinking about God. So in that sense, we're all theologians because we all have opinions and we all have beliefs about God. So I'm trying to get us out of the mindset that theology is is boring and it's only for theologians and pastors and that it's not relevant to our everyday lives. No, theology is extremely important to our everyday lives because what we think about God affects and shapes everything else that we think and that we do. For example, we, we talked about this a little bit this morning. If you believe that God is just love, right, then we'll tend to do whatever we want, right? Because, you know, God is good, He loves everyone, He wants everyone to be happy, so there's no way that He wouldn't want me to do something that brings me happiness, right? So your belief in God and who He is determines how you act. But if you thought that God was love and that He was holy and that He was just, that would change kind of how you acted a little bit. Since He's holy and just, He very much cares about what we do. So His holiness demands certain behavior from us. Right? If you just if you believe that he's holy and he will punish sin, then that will affect your behavior. So you see the difference in how you think about God affects how you're going to live and how you're going to choose what you do in, in day-to-day life. Does, does that make sense? Right? What we think about God is extremely important. So we've got to get our theology correct because everything depends on what we think about God. You are all theologians, whether you believe it or not. Right? We all have different thoughts and opinions about God. And we also tried to connect, correct the mistake that theology is just about ideas and all this dry, important, boring, impersonal stuff out there. No, remember, theology is about a person. All right? Theology is about God. How could we not want to know more about God, about our Creator, and about our Savior? So we must do theology. It's, it's how we get to know God, and it's how we get to know Him better and then love Him more. So theology exists For the purpose of relationship and worship. That's why we do theology. To have relationship with God and to worship God. It's all about knowing Him and honoring Him. So that's why we do theology. But remember, we're not just talking about general theology, right? We're talking about historical theology. Which we said last week was just the the study of what the church has believed throughout history. We've got about 2,000 years of church history. And historical theology looks back at the study and progression of theology. And and that's kind of what we're doing here. It's studying the the theology and the doctrine of the church over the course of those 2,000 years. But why is this important? You may be thinking that. Why is this important? Is this really that important? You know, can't we just read our Bibles? And absolutely we can. The, The Bible is our only source of real authority. But that doesn't mean that history isn't important as well. Think about it. Consider the apostles. Right? We don't think about this very much. Right? The apostles. Right? You got, you got 12 guys. And what were they doing? For three years, they're living with Jesus. Everything that they do is with Jesus. They're constantly being taught by Jesus over and over and over again. Jesus himself, the second person of the Trinity, is pouring in to the apostles' lives and, and an exampling life to them and teaching them nonstop for three years. But then what happens when Jesus is arrested and crucified? Right? They all panic and peace out and take off because they did not understand what was happening at all. 
But if you go back and read the New Testament, Jesus was constantly telling them, this is going to happen, this is going to happen. But they still didn't understand. They panicked. They're like, oh, we thought he was the Messiah. Now he's dead. Even though Jesus had specifically taught them that all this was going to happen. And then consider Peter's words about Paul in um, 2 Peter 3.16. Peter's writing about Paul and all the great wisdom that is contained in Paul's letters. And what does Peter say? He says, this is Peter, by the way. This guy knew Jesus better than anyone else. Peter says, there are some things in them, in the letters of Paul, that are hard to understand. All right, even Peter under, uh, struggled to understand Paul. All right, so we shouldn't be too intimidated by Paul because Peter himself, right, God's, Jesus' best friend, struggled to understand Paul sometimes. But the point that I'm trying to make is here in the two, year 2013, right, we had the advantage of 2,000 years of people praying about the Bible and, and studying the Bible and figuring out the Bible for us. Sometimes the early church gets a bad rap because, you know, they got a few things here and there wrong or it took them a little, bit of, a little while to figure out some of the stuff that we already know. But these guys, remember, were figuring it out for the first time on their own. It's, so it's, it's beneficial for us to look and see what they did and learn from their mistakes and learn from what they've already done. They've done all the work for us, right? We can just copy off their papers. We don't need to come up with all this stuff on our own. We've got 2,000 years of the church doing theology. And that's why we're doing this. Plus, studying church history and, and historical theology, it helps protect us. It helps protect the church today from error. Do you remember two years ago in Japan, the, the tsunami, right? It was some of the most fascinating videos I have ever seen, some of the destruction going on in those tsunamis. It was just absolute devastation. 15,883 deaths, 129,000 buildings completely leveled, and then another 250,000 buildings also mostly leveled, right? Just complete and utter destruction. But some villages on the coast were completely spared. Why is that? Because of these things that I'd never heard of that are called tsunami stones. All right? These things were about 10 feet high, some of them. They were massive stones that's basically written on them. Some of them are over 600 years old. And written on the stone says, do not build your homes below this stone. All right? Some of these villages had obeyed the stones. And they had been completely spared from the tsunami because they had trusted those that had come before them. They had trusted the guys who had already been through this, who had experienced tsunamis in the past and who knew where the water got to. They looked at their ancestors and said, all right, we're going to trust these guys. They've been to it before. But much of modern coastal Japan, they said, oh, you know, we've got all this great technology. We've got these awesome seawalls. We can keep the water out. And they all built down below those stones. And every one of those areas was just absolutely destroyed. And so this relates to what we're studying. The church has been here before. They've already dealt with everything that we're going to run into. Right? There's nothing new under the sun. There's not something new that's going to pop up. And like, man, I can't believe no one's ever thought of that. We've got to figure this out. No, the church has been there before. So we can rely on them and we can trust them. They've done all the work for us and we can just um, learn from their mistakes and learn from their triumphs as well. So this week, I was going to just jump into our first doctrine because, you know, we kind of did some introduction last week. So I was planning on jumping into our first doctrine, but I realized that many of us probably don't really know anything about church history. I didn't for most of my life. I didn't grow up in church. When I grew up in church my entire life, I never heard anything about church history until I got to seminary. So before we start tracing particular doctrines up through church history, I thought it might be helpful to give us a very quick 
very broad, giant overview of church history. Right, so that we'll have an understanding as we work through this stuff of just where we are in history and what Jesus has been doing in his church. So here we go. Are you ready for this? 2,000 years in 20 minutes. All right, this is, this is going to be impressive. So obviously, we have, to, we have to really skip a lot of stuff. We're calling just broad overview kind of stuff here. And usually if you talk about church history, they, people break it down into four periods. All right, there are four general periods of church history. So it starts, obviously, with, with the end of the New Testament and then the death of the apostles. It's, we're pretty sure that John was the last one to die and then sometime in the, in the 90s. And so we usually start history, church history, there about year 100. All right? So Jesus lived or, lived or died from about 0-ish to 30-33. We're not exactly sure when. All right? So then the time of the New Testament is there then from about 30 to 100, where the apostles are working and ministering and still kind of writing um, the books of the New Testament that we have now. So the last apostle dies, John, at the year 100, and then we start church history. So four periods, and look, these aren't hard and fast dates, right? These are kind of just general guidelines to help us out. So the first period is called the patristic period. Patristic, that just means father. It's the period of the fathers. Or it's just called the early church period, uh, for simplicity's sake. And that goes from about the year 100 to the year 500. All right, then the second period is called the medieval church period. And that goes from about 600 or, no, no, sorry, that goes from about 500 to 1500. All right, so that's a big one. Middle Ages, so church fathers, early church, 100 to 500. And then the medieval church from about 600, it's 500 to 1500. And then the third period is the Reformation. All right, that goes from about 1500 to about 1750. All right, that's the third period. And then after that is, is just called the modern period of church history, is the fourth one. And that goes from about 1750 until the present day. All right, so that's how church history is generally broken down um, today. Early church, medieval church, reformation, modern church. All right, those are kind of the four categories that you can remember to kind of figure out where we are in, it, in the span of things. All right, I'm going to do something that maybe is kind of strange for a church service. All right, I love maps. All right. I've come to find out that no one knows anything about maps or geography. So I'm going to at least situate us kind of for a second. And so we know kind of where we are. All right. We obviously live in the United States. All right. Everyone knows this is Europe, right? Everyone knows Europe. We've got Europe. We've got North Africa. All right. And then over here on the coast, right? This is Israel. Does everyone know where Israel is? It's important to know. Over there on the far end of the Mediterranean Sea, we got Israel. And the small little, that's Jerusalem, right? That's where it all starts, kind of down there. Uh, it says Palestine, and then by the lake there, you've got Jerusalem. All right, so that's where Jesus ministers. That's where he dies. That's where he comes back. That's where he ascends. And then that's where the church starts. All right, and then you see an axe. The church moves north. They are straight up to Antioch on the coast. All right, that's kind of their Acts 13. The church kind of stays there for the first little while in Israel. Then moves to Antioch. And it's Antioch, the church in Antioch, that sends Paul and Barnabas out. Alright, and they start spreading west. Alright, and church history is basically this the first couple hundred years is just expanding to cover this whole map. Alright? I can find a very good map, so this is the Roman Empire. So he starts everything and they spread up into Turkey. You got Turkey here, you've got Greece, and you've got Italy. Alright, so Rome is in Italy. So Rome is going to be extremely important in church history. And that's where and then you've got you know Spain and France and England. And then Germany, straight up here above, that's where the Reformation goes. Germany and Switzerland. And 
so then you're going to spend a lot of time there in church. But that just kind of gives you something to look at and visualize where these people are. So they're just in Jerusalem, and pretty quickly they're going to boom, take over kind of the entire western world. That kind of just gives you something that you can look at and kind of see where we are. I think geography is... It's very important. I'm always, I'm always geography quizzing Melissa, and she hates it. She drives her crazy, like, whoa, where is this? And he's like, ah, and then she's, you know, she does pretty good. She knows her stuff. But I, for some reason, I really like geography. Um, but so just you can look at that and, and re- make reference to that um, occasionally if you need to. Did you just sneak a water here? This is fantastic. Thank you. All right, so let's run through these four periods real quick and just get a broad overview. First one we said was the early church period from about 100 to 500. Um, all right, so that's 400 years, right? Cut it in half. All right, the first 200 years and the second 200 years are very different. All right, at about the year 300, 313, that year is extremely important. All right, we'll come back to that. So the first 200 years are very different than the second 200 years. And I might say this about every period of church history, but this, I think this might be my favorite one. I don't know, I really like it. Um, this is kind of the developmental period of the church. In just these 400 short years, the church is going to go from a handful of people at Jesus' ascension to basically taking over the entire Western world. And that is impressive growth. That is unparalleled growth in history. So, so how did that happen? What started off slowly, the first 200 years, 100 to 300, that's the period basically of the persecuted church. Rome was not the biggest fan of Christians. Remember, this whole map, basically, this whole white at around this time is basically ruled by Rome. That's basically the Roman Empire, okay, the white. All of North Africa and the Middle East there in Europe, that's all Rome. And they weren't big fans of Christians early on for those first 200 years. So there was this continuous cycle of extreme persecution, and then kind of would back off, and there would just be kind of some minor persecution, and then extreme persecution. It was kind of this cycle in and out. But this persecution was key to the church's growth. A man that we'll meet later and we'll talk about a lot, his name was Tertullian. He's one of the church fathers, one of the earliest, earliest guys. And he is famous for saying, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The church grew so quickly because it was so counter-cultural to anything else at that time. It was the faith and the calm of the Christians in the face of death that began to win people over. Listen, these guys were getting slaughtered left and right, right? And these guys were putting everything that they had, their entire lives, on the line for their faith. That is how serious they were about it. One example, a man named Polycarp. We'll talk about him. This guy was a disciple, a student of John the Apostle. So this guy is as close as you can get to the apostles. He, he studied under John. He lived in the first there in second century. And, and he, was, he was really important. We've got some letters from him, and we have an account of his death. He was arrested, and they keep trying to get him to renounce his faith. And finally, they, they tie him to the stake. They, they stoke the fires around, and they say, you have one more chance, renounce. And this is what he says. He says, for 86 years, they, they tied an 86-year-old man to a post and, and set him on fire. And he says, for 86 years, I have served him, and he never did me any wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who has saved me? You threaten fire that burns for an hour and is over. But the judgment on the ungodly is forever. And he was burned alive without a word. And that was it. And that was the story over and over again in these first couple hundred years ago. Christians willingly being killed and, and taken and martyrs after martyrs. You can go find stories about all these accounts. They're always fascinating stories of their, of their faith. Um, we don't know anything about persecution. Okay? We know nothing about persecution compared to the early church. 
But a second major factor in the spread of the church was honestly, was the love of the Christians. It was the completely different life of the Christians. Christians became known for, for taking in the poor and, and taking, for the, taking in the orphans. Listen, they didn't have the technology to have abortions back then. So what they would do if they didn't want a baby is they would just take the baby and they would just leave it outside to die. And then Christians became known for going on these baby runs. They would steal out late at night and they'd go out and they would rescue these orphan babies. And they would take them in and raise them for their own. The Christians started to spread because there was nothing like them. At the time, they were feeding everyone, they were giving their clothes to everyone, they were sharing with everyone, and people were attracted to such love. So the church grew because it was persecuted, and it grew because of the love of these very early followers. So the very first 200 years, it was a very underground movement, and it was, it was beautiful. And we'll talk about these men. We're going to hear about guys like guys named Irenaeus, and Origen, and, and Justin, and Tertullian. And remember, these guys had no one before them. These guys were paving the way, studying the Bible, and, and figuring it out um, for us. So we owe these guys a, a great deal of, of debt. And many of them gave their lives for what they believed. All right, so then, the first 200 years, right? We said, that's the key. <laughs> Sorry, Emma, Emma escaped. We have the first 200 years, from 100 to 300, is the persecuted church. All right, then the year 313 happens, and everything changes. All right, 313 is a key point in church history. Two guys, two names you need to know, most important guys for probably this early church period. One was maybe the most important pastor and theologian in all of church history, and his name was Augustine. And we're going to spend a ton of time on him later, because we don't have time today. But the other extremely important, but very different figure in the early church was the Emperor Constantine. All right, The Emperor Constantine. He's the emperor of this entire pagan Roman Empire. Right? And he comes... And in the year 312, he's, he's about to go to this really big battle. And all of a sudden, he has, this, he has some sort of vision of a cross. And Jesus comes to him and says, you're going to win this battle if you fight this battle in my name. And then he wins the battle and he converts to Christianity. He says, I, we don't actually know if this guy was ever converted. Um, but shortly after the battle, in the year 313, he passes what is called the Edict of Milan. And this is the change. Which all of a sudden, Christianity goes from being this persecuted minority underground church. And in this edict, makes Christianity an accepted and tolerated um, religion in the Roman Empire. And then a few decades later, a guy named Theodosius comes along and makes Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. All right, this shift is so significant that it's often called the Constantinian shift of the church. Right? Because Constantine, he did a few good things, but, but this, I think... Because a major problem. Because what happens is all of a sudden, the Christianity gets wedded to the state. All right? Christianity and government come together, and they become inseparable for a little bit over a thousand years. All right? So that's what Constantine did. He brought the state and the church together. And I think, and many, most people think, with, with disastrous results. All right? He did a few good things. Uh, he played an important role in, in bringing together um, the church and kind of helping to define orthodoxy. In the year 325, you've ever heard of the Nicene Creed? We, we quote that sometimes. It kind of just lays out the basics of the faith. And he was over that. And they kind of, the orthodox kind of pastors came together and hammered all this out at the Council of Nicaea. So it's really important stuff as they're, they're figuring out um, just what it means for Jesus to be God. They're, they're figuring out the intricacies of the Trinity and of the Holy Spirit and all, how all that works. So these guys did some amazing work for us. And then there's Augustine, which we just have to skip because we don't have time. 
And listen, this guy was ahead of his time. This guy was absolutely brilliant. If you want to read one of the best books ever written, go read his autobiography. It's called Confessions. It'll, it'll rock your world. It, it's wonderfully written over 1,500 years ago, over 1,600 years ago, Augustine. But I'm not going to spend time on him because we're going to spend so much time on him because basically everything that we think kind of is funneled through Augustine in some way or another. All right, so that's the early church period. Remember Augustine and then Constantine, very important, 400 years. And then we're going to move to the medieval period, which is about 1,000 years from 500 to 1,500. And the medieval period, it gets no love, right? It, it kind of gets a bad rap. It's sometimes referred to as the Dark Ages or the Middle Ages. And most people treat church history as if, as if you have the early church period, then nothing happened for 1,000 years, and then you have the Reformation. All right, so this is kind of the, the, the ugly duckling of, of the church period histories. Um, but still, it's very important, and it's key to remember in this period, the Constantinian shift is what is going to shape everything that happens in this thousand years. The church is becoming more and more tied to the state. The bishop in Rome is starting to exert his authority and his power now with the state behind him. Right? There really wasn't a pope, as we think of a, as a pope, until you know, four or five hundred years later. Right? There wasn't a pope from the very beginning. It wasn't like there was Peter and then there were all these popes kind of acting and ruling like popes are today. No, it took hundreds of years for this idea of, of the pope as we think of it to develop. But this pope becomes, starts becoming more and more powerful. Right? And this is kind of the key thing that is happening in the Middle Ages is the development of the Roman Catholic Church and the spread of the authority and power of the Roman Catholic Church. We have to hit just a few highlights. Um, remember, New Testament written in Greek, right? Uh, the language of Rome and the Roman Empire is Latin. So what starts to happen pretty early on is a divide starts to form between the West and Rome and the Latin church and the East and the Greek churches. Right? And then all that kind of comes away. They're always fighting. They're always arguing. And then in the year 1054, 1054, it all kind of comes to a head. Like the, the Pope in Rome sends some guys to the Pope in, in Constantinople is the head of kind of the Eastern Empire. It's there kind of in the little island in there in the middle of Turkey. Extremely important city. Istanbul, not Constantinople. There's a song about it. Um, but So there's a kind of a Pope there and there's a kind of a Pope in Rome. And they're always fighting. And so it gets to 1054. The Pope in Rome excommunicates the Pope there. That Pope there excommunicates this Pope. And they're all kind of fighting and hating each other. And then the church splits. That's kind of the big first church split in in 1054. It's sometimes called the Great Schism. East and West split, never to come back together. Almost basically into the forms that we have today for the Western Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Greek Orthodox Church. And this time, you have to at least touch on it. This time period also is, is the time of the Crusades. All right? Not a highlight in, in church history, but it's actually a, a very misunderstood period. Christians didn't just march off to the Holy Land to, for the joys of, of raping and pillaging and destroying and, and stealing things. No, the, you know, the Christians had been there and then the Muslims invaded and were slaughtering Christians kind of left and right. And so the, the Catholic Church went and, and responded to try and defend their people and try to defend their land. Listen, I'm not saying the Crusades were good, but they've kind of gotten mislabeled and, and twisted and abused about what they were really about to kind of try to make the church look worse than it was. Um, but we'll cover some more of that stuff later. They weren't preemptively striking. They weren't attacking people just for fun. They were going to their brothers in the east and, and trying to help them and protect them. But again, lots of stuff went wrong. Not a good period in church history. 
But for our purposes, what we'll be talking about, the name that you should know from this period, is a guy named Thomas Aquinas. This was the theologian of the Middle, Middle Ages, and we'll hear from him a lot. And as this period progresses, again, look, this is the period of the Roman Catholic Church. It is growing more and more powerful, and it is going further and further off the rails. The church is becoming inordinately wealthy and decadent. It became all about these extravagant, insane rituals. There's non, all these non-biblical ideas all of a sudden popped up. They weren't there before. All of a sudden they pop up like purgatory and, and transubstantiation. The, guy, the idea that, you know, at the Mass, at communion, that the bread and the wine actually transform into the body and blood of Christ. Right? We don't find that anywhere in the Bible. That, that developed hundreds and hundreds of years later. And as the church became more powerful and more wealthy, it naturally became more and more corrupt. Right? Popes had other people mur- murdered. Popes had other pope candidates murdered. Popes had mistresses. They grew fat and wealthy while the people suffered. And the office of the pope, for a while, basically went to the highest bidder. At one point in time, it got so ridiculous that there were three different popes in three different cities. They were all fighting each other. They were all excommunicating each other. Uh, you're, you know, anathema to you. You're not even a bl- And then this one's cursing that one, and this one's cursing that one, and no one knows who's the actual pope. And just kind of the whole thing became a farce. Biblical Christianity had been abandoned by the Roman Catholic Church. But just because the church of the state was in such bad shape. doesn't mean that there was no true church. It doesn't mean that there were no believers anywhere. There were. All right? God never abandoned his church. There were always men that we'll come back to, like John Wycliffe and, and John Huss, people who were always calling out the Catholic church for its corruption and people who were killed for it. Men, there were, always, there were always men that were faithful to God's word, and they were always trying to call the church back to it. And as bad as things looked... Right? We believe, according to the Bible, that God was always in control. It didn't get out of hand. He was like, oh man, what am I, I going to do about this? No, God was working. And I think he was allowing the Catholic Church to so deteriorate and to so diverge from the biblical faith so that he could bring about arguably the most important period in the history of the church, and that was the Reformation. All right, the Reformation is my favorite period in church history. I think it's got to be this one. This, this one's really good. This is the third period, all right? And it goes from about the year 1500 to the year 1750. Okay, as the Catholic Church, remember, more and more corrupt, God began raising up more and more men, calling out the evils of the church and, and calling for reform and, and for a return to the scriptures. And meanwhile, the, the Catholic Church is spending more and more money building more and more huge, elaborate buildings. All right, so about the turn of the century there in 1500, the Pope, they start building the, one of the best ones ever, St. Peter's. It's still there. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful building. It's, I really want to go sometime and see it. I've never been over there. But how are they doing it? They're realizing they're, they're kind of running out of funds. So they're like, man, we've know we got we to gotta figure out a way. I think we should maybe consider this. I don't know. This might be smart. <laughs> we, they, they try to come up with a way to raise some more money. So then all of a sudden, out of kind of nowhere, they come up with the idea of indulgences. All right, and what an indulgence was... Remember, the, the, the doctrine of purgatory had developed. Does everyone know what purgatory is? It's kind of this idea that, all right, if, you know, none of us are great, you know, none of us are perfect, so we still have some sins. So when we die, we go to this kind of middle place called purgatory, where God purges us from our remaining sins. And after we're there for however many hundreds or thousands of years, then once we're pure enough, then we can go to heaven. All right, that's the idea of purgatory. And by the way, there's nothing in the Bible whatsoever about purgatory. It's just, it's just not there. So they had developed this doctrine of purgatory, and so the Pope has a brilliant idea. He's like, huh, okay, you know, I control all this. And they come up with indulgences, which were basically just 
little slips of paper that you could buy for a certain sum of money. And if you bought those slips of paper, you got your time in purgatory diminished by however so many years. The more money you spent, the less time you had to spend in purgatory. Right? And marketing-wise, this was brilliant. And they were preying on the poor. Like they had these guys that were basically used car salesmen. They were brilliant. And they would go and they would particularly go to poor people and they would guilt them. We had some recordings of these, not recordings, but some written down of what these conversations were like. Where they'd go to the, do you want your poor, do you hear the voice of your poor dear mother crying out to you from purgatory? If you just give a little bit more money, you can free her from purgatory, right? How are you going to resist that, right? What, what terrible son is going to say, ah, oh, no, let him, you know, let him burn in purgatory for a little bit longer. I want to eat this Big Mac or something. No, so they were, they were, they were being quite successful and the church was making tons of money off of these indulgences. But eventually one of these indulgence sellers, a man named Tetzel, he made the wrong guy mad. Alright, Tetzel comes up to Wittenberg, Germany. We saw Germany. Wittenberg is kind of up over here. It's not on your map. It's kind of in the northeast section of Germany. This is kind of where the Reformation starts. He comes to Wittenberg and he starts selling these indulgences and this guy named Martin Luther starts to get pretty mad about it. He's kind of started to already get fed up with the church. He started studying the book of Romans, and God has kind of started to work on his heart a little bit. And then when this guy shows up, taking all the poor's money so that they can build a big, nice church in Rome, he says, all right, that's it. I've had it. And what Martin Luther does is on October 31st, 1517, he marches up the steps of his church in Germany, in Wittenberg there, and he nails what is called the 95 Theses to the door of the church. Right, and the 95 theses were just 95 different things that he wanted to have a debate about. There were things that he saw that were wrong with the church that he wanted to debate this Tetzel or some of these other guys about. Martin Luther wasn't intending to start any sort of revolution. He, he had posted those on the door in Latin, right, which was, the, which was the language of the academy. It was the scholar's language, right? It was, wasn't like a call to reformation or to revolution. But in the night, someone took those down off the wall, and they went and they translated them into German, into German, the, the language of the people, and then they spread like wildfire. And inadvertently, almost overnight, Martin Luther started a reformation. Right? He never intended to. He never tried to break with the church initially. He just wanted to have a discussion about some of these things that he thought was wrong with the church. But God had different plans, and out of Martin Luther's control, this thing just exploded. Right? And the key thing, maybe I think about the Reformation, that, that Martin Luther rediscovered was um, the idea of justification. All right? Luther, through, through studying the book of Romans, God kind of opened his eyes and rediscovered the idea of justification by faith alone through grace alone. Right, the Catholic Church's idea of justification, justification just means right, how we're justified before God, how we're saved, how we're made right before God. Right, and Luther, the church, the Catholic church had kind of shifted and perverted justification to mean basically it was this kind of dual working of, of God and you. You had to do all these things like penance and get these special kinds of baptisms and go to confessions and, and go on pilgrimage and do all of these things to justify or prove yourself. And Luther insisted, he said, that's not what the Bible says. That's not what Ephesians 2 said. It's justification by grace alone through faith alone. And Luther would spend the rest of his life fighting Rome and insisting on the grace of God as the only basis for faith. And the world would never be the same as a result. Luther led the way, but a bunch of other men kind of came behind and took up the cause. 
When you talk about the Reformation, you usually hear three guys' names mentioned. You'll hear Luther, you hear a guy named Ulrich Zwingli, and then you'll hear John Calvin. So Luther's up in Germany, and Zwingli and Calvin are right below him there in Switzerland, kind of between Italy and Germany. And Luther may be responsible for getting things started, but, but Calvin was the, was the great theologian of the Reformation. He's the one that carried it to fruition. One historian says, if Luther sounded the trumpet for reform, Calvin orchestrated the score by which the Reformation became a part of Western civilization. His book, The Institutes of the Christian Religion, which he first wrote when he was 24, I think, which is really frustrating to someone like me. Like, ah, this book is... Unbelievable. This may be the most important book in, in Christian history, obviously besides the Bible. But he wrote it when he was really young, and it says now it's this massive tome, kind of this book of, of theology that basically carried the Reformation on for the next couple hundred years. And these guys were the, the three leaders of the Reformation, and they were all, you know, they had some differences, but they were all unified around the idea that Scripture alone is the final authority in a Christian's life. All right? Not the Pope, not tradition, Scripture alone. And they all emphasize the, the sovereignty of God and the grace of God and the glory of God. And that's basically what the Reformation was about. It was about a return to God and a return to God's word. You often hear about the five solas of the Reformation. Right? Sola is just Latin for alone. Right? The, the five alones. And they were sola fide, which means by faith alone. Sola gratia, which means by grace alone. Sola scriptura, which means by scripture alone. Solus Christus, which just means through Christ alone. And then sola dei gloria, which means to the glory of God alone. These are kind of like the five themes of the Reformation. Faith, grace, scripture, Christ, God's glory. Right? That's what the reformers were about. And the trend of the church, the Catholic church, that had become more and more man-centered. And that's what happened to the Catholic church, and that's what kind of happens to any other church as, as they take their focus off of God and, and God's word. But by God's grace, the, the Reformation reoriented us back to God's word. And we are still benefiting from the Reformation today. All right, finally, final period. I'll just do it in two seconds. Um, it is the modern period. It's from 1750 to today. I have no idea how to sum up the modern period in a minute or two because there's so much happening in it. You have so many different um, denominations now all of a sudden, so many different branches. This is the period of the global spread of the church, right? The Reformation happened, and then Christians, they took to the seas, right? And they spread the, the gospel to the ends of the earth. But this was also the time, you know, you'd think, all right, Reformation, we figured it out, God's word, everything will be, will be good now. Right? But pretty quickly, right again, right away, we, we, there started to be getting away and away from God's word again. And this was what developed in kind of liberalism, liberal theology, different than political liberalism. This is liberal theology developed, right? which was basically now a turn back away from God's word and a turn back away or back to man. Right? This is the time of the Enlightenment. This is when, which was basically the time that said, all right, no more religion, no more God. It's all about human reason. We can figure it out. The Bible is crazy. You can't trust it. Um, and so it was kind of a, a split away. And then about 110 years ago, you have what is called the, the fundamentalist modernist controversy. And that's where these two kind of streams come to a head. All right, you have the, the liberal church, they're kind of, they're taking over. They've, they've taken over the mainline big denominations. They're taking over the schools. 
And then the fundamentalists finally rightly set their foot down and said, no. All right, we, these are the five things. These are certain things that we are going to be about. The, the divinity of Christ and, and the inerrancy of Scripture and the historicity of the Bible and all of these things. And, they, and then they took a stand, right? And that's where kind of there was a big split. All right? we, we lost kind of the, the role of the, the influencers. We kind of lost the, the main position in the church because all the big denominations went liberal. And the fundamentalists at least kind of said, all right, no, we're going to stick to God's word. All right, and that's kind of the heritage of this church, if I understand it. And it was about 1880-something, right, this church kind of started. And it was in a denomination for a little while, and at some point kind of said, oh, wait, wait, no. All right, we've got to make a stand here and, and take us back to the roots, take us back to God's word. All right, so that's kind of where we come from. We have a part in this history. Listen, you're not going to find a lot of churches, especially where we're from in the South, that were actually started in 1880. Like, to me, that's really cool, right? We're, we're, we're part of church history. You can see some of this stuff in church history happening in this church. And you had this, kind of these two things come together. You had the, 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 the development of the liberal strain in the church, and you kind of had a warring against the more conservative strain, right? And this church kind of stood strong, and it, and it held out, and it held on to the supremacy of God and the supremacy of Christ's word, Right, so that's kind of the modern. That's not the modern period at all. All right, I'm not even going to say that I did any sort of justice to that. But we're gonna we're gonna be coming back to those things and seeing. But just know that there was kind of this split, and that was kind of one of the major things that happened. And that's this modern period was this divide again of the church into more liberal camps, and then the camp that was trying to stay faithful to the Reformation and thus faithful to God's word. All right, that's it in 20 minutes. 30 minutes. So that's a big, massive, broad overview. Listen, that was that we didn't talk about 0.001% of any of church history. But it kind of just situates us in the timeline. It gives us an idea of, of the development and the progression of the church. So as we work through these doctrines, we can situate ourselves and know what God is doing in his church and, and know what's happening. But this stuff is important, guys. Our, our history is important. We need to know where we've been and, and we need to know where we've come from. We're studying the history of the bride of Christ. All right? Christ says that he, he gave his life. He died for the church. All right? We should know something about the thing that, and the people that, that Jesus Christ gave his life for. So, so thanks for coming out. Next week, we'll dive into a doctrine. So we'll get into some specific, we'll start studying scripture and kind of how the church has understood and, and used scripture throughout history. But let me close us and, and you guys are free to go. So let's, let's pray. Father, I thank you for this time. I thank you for these people. Thank you for their commitment to your word and, and the desire to, to learn about you. I thank you for this church, Father. I thank you that we can see kind of a microcosm of some of church history kind of just in this church in the last 130 years. I thank you for preserving and maintaining this church. I thank you that this is a church that is all about you and about your word, Father. And I pray that that is what we will become known for in this community. Um, give us hearts and minds that desire to know you better and then the desire to, to share that knowledge of you with, with people around us. So, Father, strengthen us and be with us as we go off into our week, as we go to work, as we go to school. Father, I pray that we would have the gospel on our lips. We would love those around us and serve them and that you would um, be honored by, by how we live uh, this week. So, Father, we thank you for this time and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You are dismissed.